1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? human adventure is just beginning. William Shatner, take us out, is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chappell. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. production of a Robert Wise film. Coming this Christmas from Paramount. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro and this time out I am joined by Mr. Scott Gardner. Hello. And Mr. Gene Hendricks. Permission to come aboard? Permission granted. <laughs> did I deliver that line correctly? Yes, yes. you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, 
we are here today to take a look at the much maligned Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, we're dealing here with a movie that's, I think, very heavily criticized, and I, and I believe unfairly so. And I think of the three of us, I'm probably the least uh, energetic in that statement, because I think you two even view it as more so than I do as a good movie. Um, and that's why I invited you on here tonight, because I decided tonight will be us describing why the criticism is wrong. And we, we should address some aspects of it. And there is some criticism of, of it that I do think carries some weight. And I know in the past I've talked to, to you, Scott, about it. Uh, and we didn't necessarily disagree on that. So I'm going to hit on that right off the bat. Uh, okay. I, I think this movie could have used a little bit more of a judicious eye in the editing process. And, and by that I don't mean, oh, we're going to take these sequences of, of you know, where, where we're looking at things and we're going to just chop time off of it for no reason. There are some scenes, though, where the dialogue seems to be paused and doesn't seem to come out naturally because the editing kind of waited a second too long, in my opinion. And it just makes things feel more choppy than it should. And I don't I know if, if, you're, if you're on board with those moments or if you've noticed that, but it definitely is something that bothers me a little bit when I watch it. And it's one of the few things that does bother me about this movie. Well, there, I, I don't know how how true it is, but I've heard several times over the years that um, Nick um, – oh, Jesus, I'm blanking on his name uh, – the director of uh, Star Trek II, Meyer, Nick, Nick Meyer, yeah. um, did many, many, many takes, uh, particularly with Shatner, while making Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan because he wanted a certain – uh, end product that Shatner wasn't necessarily giving him because a lot of times Shatner, you know, Shatner has his Shatnerisms and he has his certain delivery and sometimes Shatner, you know, has a, has a cheesiness to him and Nick Meyer didn't want that. He wanted a, a particular delivery of lines in, in particular sequences. So he would make Shatner do it over and over and over and over until he got, the, the end result that he, he that he wanted. Now I don't know if that story is true or apocryphal, but I've heard it enough times that I, I can believe it. And I I don't see um, Wise being that kind of a director. Wise now now I won't profess to be you know I'm incredibly uh, familiar with Wise's you know body of work, but I, I am very familiar with um, the Day the Earth Stood Still and the Sound of Music. You know he directed both of those, so I see him more as the scope guy or the 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 grand majestic scale guy i i don't necessarily see him as an as an actor's actor if you know, or an actor's director if you know what i mean i mean now clearly he got great performances out of like julie andrews and chris Plummer in um in the sound of music but that's you know to a certain degree that's a different kind of movie and, and those are great actors as well um 
I, I think there are great performances in Star Trek, the motion picture, but do I agree with your assessment that maybe they could have done another take or maybe the, the dialogues are a little stilted? Yeah. Um, but what's funny, that's one of the things I find really charming about this movie um, is that the deliveries are a little bit I, I hate to say weird, but they are a little bit weird when you compare them wo- with what came later. Um, I don't feel like they're necessarily stilted or anything, but one of the things I've always really loved about this movie is that it feels a little more. Um, I almost I almost said militaristic. That's not what I mean. If you watch like old. Like you can watch, like say Apollo thirteen, mm. and get totally sucked into that movie and and how much fun it is and and it feels very authentic and and it is in a lot of ways, but then you actually go back and watch the actual NASA you know films and and, and the actual you know listen to the actual um, audio from the missions and stuff, and you realize that it's full of a lot of jargon. It, it's it's very straightforward. And that's what I hear a lot when I when I watch Star Trek the Motion Picture is that they're they're on a mission. And I think it's important to remember that this is really the only movie in the series where they're on a mission or at least a mission like this. Um, so I kind of like that, that, that the dialogue, while it may come off a little clunky and a little stilted and all that, it's because it's in that kind of NASA we're on a mission mold. Does that, does that make sense? Does that follow? That yeah. actually makes a lot of sense to me because I had the exact same thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's, uh, I think the word you were looking for is it's procedural. Procedural, yes, yes. They're, they're yes. going through the checklist. They're leaving yes. the, the space dock and it's okay. You know, Engage thrusters. Thrusters engaged. Thrusters station keeping. <laughs> you know, it, they're they're going through yeah. the, the checklist. Now, now uh, other people might watch that and be bored to tears with that. I love that because it reminds me of the real procedures that they do when they launch spacecraft. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you again, you watch Apollo 13 and there's that great scene where they're going around the room and everybody's got to OK or, you know, they're either go or no go. Right. And they, they do that when they launch the Enterprise in this. And I, I love that. It feels authentic to me. And um, the the other side of it is, and I think this speaks to what you were more getting at, Paul, is no one is comfortable in this movie. Kirk is, <laughs> has fought to get the Enterprise back, and he doesn't recognize the Enterprise. Decker just got demoted. Thrown <laughs> under the bus. Yeah, essentially. Spock is still fighting with his emotions. McCoy was yanked out of retirement. Scotty needed another year to finish the Enterprise. So no one is comfortable. So, like, you'll, the, the conversation between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in the observation lounge is you have a lot of dialogue in there that it feels off. Because they're not the same guys anymore. They're, they right. have been changed by their experiences in the last two and a half years. Ten actual years, but two and a half in the story. And 
they aren't comfortable with each other anymore. And you don't see them comfortable with each other until the very end. As soon as Kirk yep. says that away, everything's fine again. Yep. So much so that uh, Spock and, and McCoy feel comfortable with uh, exchanging jackets with each other. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you look better in green, actually, Spock. <laughs> Now, one of the things I've maintained over the years is I believe that for the more casual fan, one of the reasons this movie has gotten such a bad reputation is because people try to watch it on their 19-inch tube TVs, which Mm -hmm. was the big TV in the living room when this first became available for home viewing. Now that we have 50, 60, 70, 80-inch TVs in our living rooms with high definition, I think it's a totally different world to watch this movie on because this movie was made for widescreen viewing. Oh, yes. This was not made to be watched on a little tiny TV set. Gene and I can definitely attest to that. Oh, Um, yeah. (laughs) We were were lucky enough to to be able to go together and attend the uh, the 40th anniversary uh, showing of this. Now, I had never seen it on the big screen. I had seen it on, you know, larger televisions and everything. And I've seen it, you know, I only ever watch it in, in letterbox format on TV when I watch it. But even that, you know, it's not until you see it on that massive theater screen that you really appreciate again, the, the, the scope and the, and the majesty that wise was going for. I always kind of considered wise kind of a strange choice as the director for this but having now seen it, you know, as it was intended to be seen on the big screen, I, I kind of get it a little bit better because he definitely had a sense of, of scope and grandeur with this. And I think uh, that's something that that really has been, under, you know, far underappreciated all these years. Um, but, you know, in fairness, as you say, you know, for, for an entire generation – you know, to kind of steal a bit from uh, yeah. one of the old Star Wars trailers, you know, when the special editions came out. You know, but for an entire generation, the only way they could see it was on TV. And it, it definitely loses something, especially if you're watching this on one of the old, like, pan and scan video releases, mm-hmm. that you're going to lose everything with the, with the scope of the movie, you know, watching it that way. So, yeah, that that is a lot of the movie is... Because you have to remember, you know, and, and this is... Probably, you know, whether it's a valid criticism or not, I, I don't know. I don't think it is. But one of the biggest criticisms, one of the biggest problems, frankly, this movie ever had was that it was released into a post-Star Wars world. But it was not uh, It was not trying to emulate Star Wars. It was trying to emulate 2001 A Space Odyssey, which mm-hmm. was the, the prior big sci-fi hit movie. Um so it's always struck me as really weird that one of the, the common, probably the most common criticism you'll hear levied against this movie is how slow and boring it is. But I've heard this com- this complaint from the very same people that love 2001. So it's like, I find 2001 a hell of a lot slower and more boring. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I like that movie, but that, that movie is infinitely slower and more boring than Star Trek The Motion Picture is. I think I can attribute to one person more than anything else, Jerry Goldsmith. 
You put Jerry yeah. Goldsmith on 2001, I guarantee you, you would enjoy it a lot more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I will go for that. Well, he, 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 I mean, he may, this may be his masterpiece as far as film Absolutely. scoring goes. Uh, I would put Planet of the Apes up there myself. Planet of the Apes is an incredible score, and it's very experimental in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this is this is certainly a more traditional score, but I do think this is the more compelling score to listen to. Oh yeah. Although I do love the Planet of the Apes score as well. Don't get me wrong. Well, just just as a testament to that point, I mean, I, I have you know an, an entire playlist on my phone that that seldom ever gets changed or, or deleted. I'll, I'll add things occasionally to it, but that is just Jerry Goldsmith. And I've got Planet of the Apes, I've got Logan's Run, I've got, uh, you know, First Blood, Supergirl, The Burbs, I mean, a whole ton of Jerry Goldsmith. But the one that gets listened to the most is Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I I do consider this his finest score. As a matter of fact, I, I consider it one of the finest scores that's ever been composed. And the the... The best testament I can give for this movie personally is that this nine times out of ten is the music that I listen to to fall asleep at night, which I know on the surface might sound like a really laughable thing to say because people say how boring the movie is. But try falling asleep to soundtrack music sometime. It's (laughs) not You know, especially when you're listening to, to some, you know, most soundtracks, at least from this genre of film, you know, science fiction or action, um, you know, they, they have big, loud, mo- you know, Star Wars, you know, it, it's tough to fall asleep to a Star Wars score because it's a lot of action. It's a lot of triumphant music, that sort of thing. This, once they get out into space and, and you know, they're heading towards V'ger and especially when they get to V'ger, it has a lot of quiet. And I like that in a score where it, it, it settles down and it has a, a quietness to it and it has just a, a certain peaceful serene quality to it even when it's being weird and experimental it's still very peaceful to listen to apes is a great i love planet of the apes it's a great score you can't fall asleep to it you know so it, <laughs> that'll, that'll get you out of bed is what planet of the apes will do yeah this, this exactly. one also has its you know it's alien moments and you know you talk about when they're in vija but also when they're on vulcan mm-hmm. you know it, the- it's it, it it definitely emulates the feel that you're trying to get from the score, you know, what, what what you want your audience to be picking up from it. And I think one of the biggest testaments to what they thought of this, the, you know, the music in particular, the, you know, the main theme uh, is that they decided to use it for Star Trek, the next generation, which was, mm-hmm. you know, that was a, it was, it was a major undergoing for them to make that series. If you think about it, you know, they were investing oh, a lot of money into it. They were putting it out in syndication. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, Paramount was taking a big chance, and they said, you know what, this is this score is what we're going to want to use. And it's become, you know, over time, synonymous with that show. It has. That, that kind of hurts me, my soul a little bit, though, that <laughs> you know, how <laughs> this has become the, the theme to Star Trek The Next Generation, and people kind of forget where it actually came from. And even that, they they did do a rearrangement for for next gen, which right. pales in comparison to the original. The original is just so iconic that you any change to it diminishes it. 
And the the original is is a little bit more bombastic than the uh, oh definitely the, the re re. Well, I mean, just the way just the way it starts. I, I mean, because the, the fanfare they, at the beginning. This particular mm. theme um, not only was was you know recycled and reused for Star Trek: The Next Generation, but it was also used again with both uh, Star Trek Five and um um gosh, what was the other one? I'm blanking on it. There was one other time it was reused again. I'm trying to remember what it was, but th- when when they used it again. They did change it up a bit, and none of them start the way this one starts because it starts out right out of the gate with the drum, boom, boom. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it gets your attention right out of the gate as soon as it starts, and I love that. And to me, the best Goldsmith scores are the ones that that do something experimental or something new that nobody else had really tried before. You know, with Apes is full of that. You know, it's got all that weird, you know, the, the weird instruments and, uh, you know, the ram's horn that he uses and all that weird stuff. And with, like, Logan's Run, it's got all the, the electronic sounds and everything that he incorporated. Within you, with this, you've got the blaster beam. The blaster beam is the voice of V'ger, yeah. you know, in the film itself, and it's actually part of the score. And I think that's really neat that, that he worked it that way. And it works really, really well. It's very effective. It, it gives an otherworldly quality to you know not only the score but to that character as well, who doesn't really have a voice beyond the music. So now, don't get me wrong, because Star Trek Two is not only my favorite Star Trek movie; it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So I'm not trying to diminish movies after this one in any way, but this is the only one, in my opinion where they tried to make a big screen movie as opposed yeah, ab- to absolutely. a cinematic episode of the TV show. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So absolutely. I think you have to view this in a different way than you view the other ones. And I think maybe the other ones have kind of spoiled people's ability to view this the way it should be viewed uh, in, in their own way, especially since, you know, we are watching them at home with very few exceptions. So when you look at the structure of this movie, it really is a science fiction film populated by the Star Trek cast and crew. It's not a Star Trek film. Well, I don't, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a couple exceptions. And, well, I, I just, just let, me, let me build on that a little further before you, before you tear <laughs> me apart. Uh, it has its moments where we get the mythology, where we get, you know, Mr. Spock trying to, uh, you know, to, to make his peace with the Kalinar and all of that. And you have, you know, uh, Captain Kirk trying to make his peace with the fact that he should be a captain, not an admiral and all of that. So there are plenty of character moments in here. But, again, I think overall, the overall story about V'ger and all of that is far, far more science fiction story laden than anything else we've ever had in a Star Trek movie. And now that I've finished the whole thought, tear me apart, Scott. <laughs> well, no, no, I don't want to tear you apart. It's just uh, you, you touched on two things. For one, the, the criticism thing. I, I, I kind of want to take a different tact on that, only in the aspect of while this film still clearly has its critics – I, I have really enjoyed seeing in the years since Chris Honeywell and I first covered uh, Star Trek, you know, first started 
making plain our opinion that uh, that it is a good movie, that it's not what people think, and that it's not the turkey or the or the you know the slow movie that everybody's always criticized it for. In the years since we've done that, and especially in the years since Gene and I have become friends, we've talked about it several times on different podcasts and everything. I have seen a a real shift in the opinions that I'm seeing uh, online about this movie. I mean, there's actually a Star Trek, the motion picture appreciation group now on Facebook, for example. Um, but even outside of that, I, I've seen a lot more article. I've seen more articles in favor of the movie lately um, than I have seen knocking it. And some of them have been really good articles that are pointing out some of the things that we've been pointing out as well. And talking about, you know, the scope and the grandeur of the movie and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's not that I necessarily agree with you or disagree with you. It's, you know, but you said something about, you know, this is this is not really that this is a science fiction movie with the Star Trek characters in it. To me, it, it's more of this is the only real Star Trek movie. And what I mean by that is that there's. Right from the very beginning of Star Trek, you have to remember that there's really two Star Treks right from the very beginning. You have the so cerebral that we think it's too smart for the average dumbass viewer Star Trek, which was the cage. And then you had the redo, which was where no man has gone before, which was more of, you know, Kirk gets his shirt ripped and gets into a bare knuckle fist fight at the end of it. And so... I think it's very interesting that not only did the TV show start that way, now the movies start the exact same way. You've got a movie that's pretty smart and maybe a little too clever for the audience that came to see it because they were expecting more of where no man has gone before, but what they got was the cage. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, total sense. And then, yeah. And then all the films that came after it to one degree or another were more of, you know, the, the bare knuckle, you know, fist fighting Kirk, uh, you know, Star Trek two is definitely that. I mean, it, that's a straight up space adventure movie. This is not, this is cerebral science fiction. And I don't, and, the, and there's plenty of stuff in this that gives you food for thought. Again, talking about, you know, Spock's character journey in this, uh, Kirk's character journey in this, even to some small extent, bones, and then the relationship between Ilya and Decker, and then V'ger and what it's looking for and all that. There's a lot of things here that you could sit and you could just ponder after it's done and think about, you know, how did that go? What, you know, wh what was the development? There were character arcs that we had. This, this was a complex movie. And maybe that's part of the thing that got criticized too, is it, you know, this movie requires that you pay attention to it, even though it's not Absolutely. a fast moving yeah. movie. Absolutely. Yeah. It and like any good science fiction story, like you said, you keep thinking about it after the movie's over. What happened to V'ger, Decker, and Ilya? Is, right. is everything going to be okay? Are they in another plane of reality, or are they just somewhere else in our universe? You know, what What happened to all the data that V'ger was supposed to transmit? You know, there are all these questions afterwards, and what happens to the Enterprise? You know, there's, there's the, the, the promise of this refit ship going out and doing more adventures. And then the next thing we get, oh, no, it's a training ship now. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a letdown, well, really. Is, 
one of the the neat things about this movie is you know the the what ifs that spin out of it you know what if yeah. this had been the pilot to the uh, a proposed tv show that it initially started its life as now i would never want to live in the in a world where star trek 2 never happened right. cuz star trek 2 on a on a certain level uh, is the best one in my opinion but this is my favorite one so you know it, it, it's that weird dichotomy between the two of them but this is such a great like jumping off point for so many great ideas you know you hit on a lot of them you know one of the big ones for me was given the the complete disparity of characters of both um kirk and mccoy between how this movie ends and how Star Trek two picks up, what the hell happened? Yeah. You know, so it's things like that. And I think that whether fairly or unfairly lends a lot to why I like this movie so much, because it's it not only, as you say, gets you thinking about the events that actually happened in the movie, but also the things that could now spin out from the movie as well. Some of which were followed up on, a lot of which, unfortunately, never were followed up on. But I still like that sort of thing because, as you say, it gets you thinking about it and it sticks with you, you know, for a long time afterwards. And, I mean, there's a lot of really big concepts in this movie. Um, you know, just the whole idea, um, you know, especially for the 70s, you know, with, with you know, we're sending probes out into space, you know, that – uh, now have been proven that they eventually left our soul. You have to remember back in 79, that hadn't happened yet. We had just launched, you know, the, the very first Voyager probes, but they were still well within the solar system. Voyager's now gone forever. It's, it's left our solar system. And here was well, at least for the next that, 300 years. What's that? Yeah. I said, at least for the next 300 <laughs> years. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but here was a movie that, that, you know, long before, like, John Carpenter's Starman was asking that question. You know, so we're sending this stuff out there. What happens? You know, what happens to it? Where does it go? And and here's a movie that, that tackles that. Well, you know, this is what happened to it. And, you know, so I like those those big sci-fi concepts that this movie's playing with. And, you know, one of the big criticisms I, I've heard for years and years and years, and it's it's one of the, the criticisms I completely – you know, because with most criticisms, I'll, I'll listen to them and I'll try to glean out like, okay, is this a legit criticism? And and you know, try to try to address it. With this one, I think it's just a completely ridiculous criticism. <laughs> is that there's no characterization in this? That these that the characters aren't true to themselves? That's complete bullshit. It's as Gene said, they've moved on with their lives, and now they're having to deal with the fact that suddenly they're they're right back to where they were, you know, a few years ago. They're they're thrust back together again. And instead of it being a happy reunion, which maybe, you know, you know, in fairness, that's probably what the fans were looking for is they wanted a happy reunion movie. It's not happy because there's a lot of them that don't want to be in the place that actually Kirk's like the only guy that really wants to be there. Yeah. But McCoy was perfectly happy being retired. Spock, the only <laughs> reason he's there is he he's trying to f figure out his own thing. He could really care less that. It happened to be the Enterprise. It, any ship would have done, as long as they were going to V'ger. Yeah, well, I think, I think Spock has the most clear character arc in this movie. Yeah. Because, because yeah. he is seeking that, and by the end of the movie, he gets that understanding. And then he does want to be there with them. Right. right. But so even he, Kirk. You know, Kirk forced his way back onto the Enterprise, 
not realizing the problems that was causing. And Decker had to point out multiple times, hey, <laughs> this is how it works. You can't do what you want to do because it, it, you're not just not going to be able to get there. You have to do this now, not this. He didn't, Kirk doesn't even know how to get to uh, Turbo Shaft 8. He has to have a yeoman show him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Kirk has the arc where he finally, about halfway through the movie, he is not forcing his will on everybody anymore. He right. is now accepted of his role and Decker's role. And the fact that Decker is there to help him. And that's when they start joking back and forth. And you don't see that in the first half of the movie. In the first half, Decker hates his guts for taking this, you know, saying, oh, yes, I handpicked you for this command, but eh, no, not anymore. Well, and you can't, and you can't blame Decker for it. No, I can't. No, I'm not saying it was bad. Uh, it, it's, But Kirk is still, he thinks that he is on the Constitution class Enterprise, not the Enterprise class Enterprise. Right. And Decker's the one that has to hold his hand, but Kirk's, Kirk is at the, um, like, the three, four-year-old child stage where he needs his hand held to go across the street, but he keeps pushing it away. No, I don't want you to hold my hand. You know what I mean? As parents, I'm pretty sure you do. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then he, you know, he comes around and realizes, no, he's trying to help me. And Bones smacking him upside the head in his quarters definitely helped with that. But once you get to the point where they are joking back and forth, they've accepted each other, they know what their roles are, and then they can move on. So Kirk went through this whole, I am now the ignorant admiral from Starfleet on the ship to begin with, back into Captain Kirk. And, took- and, you, and you have to love that character development, too, because yeah. during the series, that was always such a thing, that the admirals don't have any clue as to what real life is like, and yet they keep trying to impose their will on things. And now we have Kirk actually playing that part until he's finally smart enough to do you know, what he has to. But uh, I mean, De- Decker is... Doing. Decker is far more professional in how he behaves throughout this movie than Kirk is. Oh, yeah. Well, because Decker, he is a good officer. He knows what he's supposed to do. As soon as he's told, oh, you're getting a a temporary grade reduction to commander, he accepts it. He doesn't like it, but he accepts it, and then he's right into his new role. He resents Kirk for doing that to him, but he doesn't—he doesn't do a Will Riker under Captain Jellicoe and go sulk in his cabin, right? Of course, I happen to like Captain Jellicoe, but that's just me. Yeah, I do think that there are some missed opportunities, though, and, and it's funny that you know, with all the criticisms that get leveled against the movie, it's seldom like legit, if you know what I mean, criticisms that I hear as far as like missed opportunities. Cause I think that there's a, a really big missed opportunity with, with playing more with that Kirk and Decker uh, dynamic because, you know, this is, and they never make it clear in the movie, but this is the son of Matt Decker. 
Right. And what mm-hmm. Kirk is doing by coming onto the Enterprise and, and doing what he's doing and, and taking over command and everything is very similar to what Matt Decker tried to do in the Doomsday Machine. I mean, it's what he did do. He came aboard and he instantly took over command against the wishes of everybody else and and didn't make decisions that the other crew members agreed with and everything. And now Kirk is kind of doing the same thing. And I think it would have lent a lot of motivation to Decker's character in the movie if it was made perfectly clear who he was, who he was the son of, and what he was trying to live up to. And they don't really – there's a lot of dialogue. It's one of those things where you have to watch this movie multiple times to start really getting into the story. And I do think that's kind of a weakness of the film is that – it's one of those ones where uh, unless you're really on it with the dialogue, you, you really have to give it multiple viewings to pick up on a lot of what the, the actual story is. Because the whole thing with Nagura, um, I don't think plays plainly, if you know what I mean. You, you kind of have to cipher out exactly what happened and how Kirk got the, the Enterprise back. And you're filling in a lot of those blanks yourself without – ever seeing it you're just kind of being told and that's i hate to say it because i love this movie but you know that's not good storytelling when you're doing more of tell but don't show and so i've never felt like the whole thing with with nagura and all was really made plain no uh, they, they just they just kind of give you that he had a meeting with him and that he convinced him to give him command back and then you only have, you know, the comment from Scotty, oh, that couldn't have been easy with Nagura. Right. You know, but, but, you know, you don't really get any kind of a feel for, well, why wasn't it easy? Why right. didn't they want you on this? Absolutely. And and I feel like there's other key aspects of the movie where they're, you know, again, I know that this is more of a high concept movie and everything, and, and I appreciate that, but sometimes you, you do kind of have to boil it down a little bit more for the audience. And so there's certain aspects of this where I feel like maybe the, the criticisms are a little bit more justified just because, you know, while I don't want to see the overall big concepts being, you know, dumbed down, you know, the whole Voyager thing and all that, there's other elements of the movie like what exactly what's going on with Spock. If you're not into Star Trek, I don't think that's really apparent to you exactly what a big deal this was and exactly what the hell Spock was on. You know, that he was mm-hmm. on a personal journey to try to get his mental shit together and, and reconcile his soul uh, between, you know, the two warring factions of his biology, you know, the human and the Vulcan. I don't think any of that is plain to the average viewer that's just going in off the street with very little, but maybe some, you know, half remembered uh, episodes of Star Trek they caught, you know, 10 years ago. And so I think that does work to the detriment of the movie without them being a little more plain spoken about exactly what's happening with that. And I think there's elements again with, with Kirk and Decker that, that aren't plain spoken enough on that either. Well, I I think to some extent, one of the reasons this movie gets criticized, and I think it's a, it's a wrong criticism, is there is a misconception of Captain Kirk as this womanizer, womanizing ass kicker. Uh, I mean, and yes, there's there's no question, you know, he he has luck with the ladies, and he doesn't mind rolling up his sleeves and getting into a fight. But I think that is what some people who are 
you know, peripherally into the original series. That's all they know. So right. this move, this movie tended to subvert their expectations of Captain Kirk. First of <laughs> all, he has no romantic, you know, uh, connection whatsoever in this movie, other than you know, Ilya uh, comes on board and says, uh, "My my oath of celibacy is on file, <laughs> Captain." You know, that, that's that's as close to any uh, romance we get for him in this. <coughs> and he's far from infallible. He he he's very fallible in this movie. Which is just not what we expect from him. It's 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 a character arc that I think plays well when you start to look at it more in depth. But when you're looking at it, you know, purely on the surface, and if you were only a casual fan, I understand why that characterization of Captain Kirk isn't what you want to see. You want to see the much more cartoonish. I'll just get into a fight and kick some ass, or I'll talk to a computer and make it self-destruct. You know, that's that's what you that's what the I guess the the more uh, or the less indoctrinated fans were looking for. And they didn't exactly. get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But well, I, I, I think it's better. I think the movie is better for it. But I, I think do too. But I think the, the yeah, reviews but, you know, even, got worse for it. Even agreeing with with what you're saying, because I totally agree with you. But even agreeing with that, I still think people aren't digging deep enough beneath the surface because those elements of classic Kirk are there. Yeah. He may never kiss a woman in this movie and yes, he may never get in a bare knuckle fist fight, but he does outsmart the computer, you know, (laughs) just like he used to do in in the old episodes. I mean, he is in in many instances, he has the leg up on V'ger because V'ger is, you know, while it may be this incredible supercomputer and everything, it's naive. It's a child. And he, Kirk stays a, a step ahead of V'ger pretty much through the whole movie, you know, once they get to that, that confrontation point. And I like that, that, you know, Kirk's, he, he's not just, you know, he's not stupid. And yeah. I like that. I like when it shows that, you know, there's, there's a brain going on there as well. You know, and there's other aspects as well. But the thing is, you know, that Kirk's, Kirk has a very important arc in this movie, too, that I think is often overshadowed by not only the big picture of the movie and the thing with Decker and the thing with Spock, but, you know, I mean, he he's having to prove himself to himself all over again because he allowed himself to be promoted into the Admiralty and I think he's come to the realization and, and it didn't really take... Um, McCoy to point it out to him that that was not the best move for him, you know, that his strength is in being a starship captain. Well, now he's got to prove it to himself again. And it, I like that you actually see that over the course of the movie, because when he first comes to the bridge, I think a lot of that is bravado. I don't think he's really that comfortable being there. And it's not honestly until a little bit later in the movie when things start to gel and, you know, he winks at Chekhov and all that. He he starts to feel comfortable in the role again. Well, I, th- I think he I think, again, it's part of the arc. I think he comes to the bridge or he walks, you know, when he first walks onto the ship <laughs> before he gets lost. <laughs> I think he thinks it's all going to be the way it was. And that it's no big deal. That's why he went to Nagora, because he thinks he's the best suited for the part or for the role or for the, you know, for that job. Uh, and then he learns that, you know, grudgingly that he, he doesn't have all the knowledge that he needs to be the perfect captain anymore. And that he has to lean on 
his his confidants and his crew in order to get that ability and then grudgingly he does that and he becomes better for it and then he starts to have that confidence again right it's it's the wormhole incident that really shook him because up until then he's going he's following procedure he's going through everything he knew knew what to do once the engines went into imbalance and the wormhole formed then he he was out of his element he he might have seen a wormhole before but he didn't know that the phasers wouldn't operate. He uh, didn't know how to react once Decker belayed his order. And that shook him because Decker saved the ship. And but that's, then, and, and, then but, Spock comes aboard and he fixes the problem. And now Kirk is complete because he's got the other right. the other part of the trio is there. Yeah, Yeah, but when immediately after when Kirk says, you know, uh, engineer, we need warp speed now, and that's when McCoy, hey, back off, <laughs> right? You know, and but you can see he's angry. He's not angry at Scotty. He's angry at himself for not getting it done the right way. And he, well, there's such a. a oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just gonna say that you know he he thought that Scotty was exaggerating when he said you know how, you know I. There's no way I can get this ship ready in 12 hours. It's not going to happen. But Sky was right because they they weren't anywhere near ready to launch. Yeah, I've always felt that there was a, a, a real missed opportunity in that wormhole sequence because that that's one of the the as the sequences of the film. It's not my favorite scene, and it, a lot of it's because of the, the weird effects and all that, but also it, it plays a little funny, and I always thought the thing that could have really saved or at, or at least enhanced that scene, and I can't believe they didn't, they didn't use it, was – so the whole reason that they go into the antimatter imbalance – or rather, I'm sorry, the, the whole reason rather that um, Decker – belays Kirk's orders with uh, with the phasers is that the phasers were cut off while they were in the antimatter imbalance because the the phasers are now channeled through the warp engines to increase their power that recommendation came from Kirk that was right. his recommendation from the original enterprise when they finally got back to earth and and the mission was over that was one of the many recommendations that Kirk gave to whoever the Starfleet Corps of Engineers or whatever to enhance the ship was why don't you channel it through the warp engines to increase the the effectiveness of the phasers and by not having that in the in the film i don't know i i feel i've always felt like that just it was a weird choice not to make that part of the, you know because one of the again one of the criticisms of the movie is that uh there's not enough dialogue there's not enough interaction between the characters and things that would have been a great interaction moment having somebody point that out to kirk maybe spock mm-hmm. you know do you not remember kevin you know this was actually your you know basically pointing out how could you make such a stupid mistake when this was your idea and they never go that way. And I've always kind of been baffled by that, why that was never a thing in the movie. If, if they thought of that at all, and I don't have any reason to think they did, uh, but if they did at all, maybe the reason why you wouldn't want to do that is because you're already showing him to have some chinks in the armor. 
and maybe you don't want to make it something where the people say, boy, that was stupid of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe maybe that's just like, like a bridge too far. Yeah, that makes sense. That right. Because we do ultimately want him to be, you know, the guy who uh, Nina sings about in 99 Luft Balloons. Because <laughs> I always loved that line, by the way. <laughs> and anybody who does not know that song, which it's 30 some odd years old now, uh, <laughs> the song was sung in German, but there was also an, an English version of it. And she says, everyone's a superhero. Everyone's a Captain Kirk. <laughs> I always just love that. Uh, one of the things that was criticized in this movie, and I have mixed feelings on it, is the uh, the uniforms, the new uniforms that they came up with. <laughs> and while I kind of agree with the really pajama one looking ones, I'm not a fan of those. I think the uniform that Kirk has on in the beginning of the movie with the the two colors, uh, the admiral like uniform, the admiral yeah. uniform, I think that's really sharp looking. And I don't have any problem with that at all. Uh, uh, Kirk's Admiral uniform makes a very good sweatshirt, too. (laughs) I'm I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy about the one that's just (laughs) kind of looks like a sweatsuit. It's just like, you know, the the gray top with the Starfleet insignia and then a gray pair of pants that are, you know, loose fitting and, and, you know, they, they almost look like yoga pants. But like, uh, uh, like that's the, the one I'm not crazy about. When Kirk's got the white short sleeve shirt on, I love that. Yeah, that no, I think that looks good. sharp. Yeah, but I was actually thinking about this today as I was watching the movie again. See, I've worn the Wrath of Khan uniform. I've I, seen pictures of you in the Wrath I've of had, Khan uniform. It is unbearably hot and uncomfortable. <laughs> so these now, Scott, you can speak to this more because you have experience in this to me the wrath of khan uniform or the monster maroon if you will is more of a dress uniform yes these uniforms are more duty uniforms because you you can move around in these really well well these almost look like warm-up suits to some extent well, the the thing is, I, I no, don't get me wrong. I, I love the uniforms in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. They are, they are my favorite Star Trek uniforms. But I understand all of the criticisms of them. And if I had to make a change to them, I think ultimately the problem with them is I don't think it's the look. I don't think it's the feel. I think what really is the issue for at, at least the actors is that they look like pajamas. They look like footy pajamas. So I think an easy fix is if you made the the bottoms, if you made them actual slacks and and have them just like the next-gen uniforms where they they end at a cuff Mm -hmm. and they have boots on. But essentially, you have the pant and the boot is all one unit, so they look like footy pajamas. So they do look a little silly in, in the bottom portion. But everything else about them, I really like. Uh, I, I think, honestly, I think their their biggest issue was that footy pajama thing. And then some of the guys, um, you know, they weren't comfortable with, you know, with it being a, a tight, form-fitting, you know, outfit like that. Yeah, you can you can definitely uh, see some David Bowie going on in the labyrinth <laughs> here. Yeah. But I, I do. I really like them. And I, I think, again, one of the, the big reasons I like it is... You know, I like the the kind of uh, 
I, I think it lends a certain authenticity to it because it it feels very NASA like. This is something mm-hmm. I could totally believe NASA astronauts wearing in a couple hundred years from now, and I like that. It just it fits with the overall aesthetic. Um, you know, I, I love the uniforms that they they wore in all the later movies, but they're they're a little too uniform. I mean, the only thing that distinguishes one person from another is their rank insignia and the colors of the departments. But you, that's really subtle, and I wonder how many people even noticed that. Um, but also, it's it's more militaristic, and this is not supposed to be a militaristic organization. This is supposed to be a group of explorers. And that's really what they feel like in the first movie. They they feel like a natural outgrowth. They they feel like the natural evolution of NASA to me. I don't get that from the later movies. Well, I think there's always been a, a certain level of schizophrenia with uh, whether they are a military organization or if they are just a, an exploration organization. Because I think they've gone back and forth, not only in the movies, but on the TV series, the various TV series as well. Uh, so right. that's something where, where I think uh, you could probably have a, a, a lengthy debate and still not have a true answer as to what the, exactly their function is or what their, their mission statement should be. It, uh, it, depend, it depends on the situation. Sometimes yeah. they're required for defense. They're more militaristic. Sometimes they're pure exploration. Yeah, it's, it's, it's whatever – and that's the thing about the five-year missions is they were out – on the fringes of known space, they had to be everything. So you can, you can make an argument one way or another, but no, I, I agree with what you said, Scott. These these uniforms look like uh, you see any press conference with NASA astronauts are all in the blue jumpsuits. Right. These are the more futuristic blue jumpsuits. But Complete my personal pockets. <laughs> My personal favorite uniform from this particular movie is the Captain Kirk Admiral uniform at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I love that. that. That's just really sharp. Yeah. And I honestly, I don't, you know, not every single member of the of the cast, but most of them, Kirk in particular, uh, I don't think they ever looked better than they look in this movie for for most of them. Not not every single member of the cast, but most of them. But definitely Kirk. Well, if, he, if you ever read. Uh, William Shatner's Star Trek movie memories, he talks about when they started talking about Phase 2, he immediately started going to the gym and, uh, mm. you know, knew that he needed to try and get himself into shape because he had kind of let himself go a little bit over the couple of years. And right. uh, So, he, I mean, and you could see he was in good shape at the point where they filmed this. And I guess he's probably around 45 years old. Which is, you know, which, right. which is an age where you start to kind of spread a little bit and, yeah. you know, you, you do start experiencing, uh, whether you like it or not, you know, you, you start looking a little physically older. And I don't think he's showing it here at all because I think he got himself into no, really he, good shape for this movie. He looks great. Yeah, when, when we first see him, when that shuttle door opens up and he steps, I, he just, he looks great. He, he looks so good to me. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a hero, you know, when he steps off that thing and... And that's kind of the, the – the I don't know if it's what they were intentionally going for, but that's definitely the feeling I get off of that is that you know this, this guy's a, a war hero for all intents and purposes, and I really like that. I think uh, you know, McCoy looks really good. He wasn't yet 
You know, I mean, he was definitely he was older, but he wasn't old yet. He he wasn't emaciated yet. Right. Well, he he, I mean, he was a little older than the rest of the cast. Yeah. So I'm guessing if if William Shatner was about 45, uh, DeForest Kelly was probably about 50. Shatner, when they filmed this, was 47. 47. Okay, so maybe maybe Kelly was 52 because I think he was about five years older than Shatner, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, Kelly was 58. Really? Okay. He was born in 1920. Wow. Okay. He was so he was 11 years older than Shatner. Yeah. Yeah, And you know what? He looked pretty good. He did. (laughs) He he looked only a couple years older than Shatner. I I remember when this movie came out, and William Shatner appeared on. I don't know if it was the Today Show or Good Morning America or whatever. You know, he was promoting the movie. And uh, I don't know why, but it stayed with me. The, the, uh, they asked, you know, you know, well, you know, now you're making a major motion picture instead of a TV show. You know, what kind of things could you do to, you know, that you couldn't do on the TV show? You know, is there nudity? And he just <laughs> kind of looked perplexed. And he says, well, there's baldness. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, here it is. You know, 40-some-odd 40, 40 years later, and, and it still stayed with me, that I just thought that was, like, you know, what a dumb question, and what a good answer. Now, did you guys see this when it came out? I did. No, I I didn't see this until it was on home video. It was actually, I, I probably said this a million times already, this was my first ever introduction to Star Trek. And it was from oh, the wow. VHS tape. Yeah. I saw it when it came out, but I was not the Star Trek fan then that I am now. I still enjoyed it. I, mm. I, I can't deny that. I enjoyed this movie. This used to be, I used to consider this uh, like a guilty pleasure to the extent, not, you know, and Scott, we've talked about guilty pleasures. Not that I felt guilty in any way. And not even that I thought this was a bad movie. But I knew this was a movie that a lot of other people didn't like. Right. So it was one, I remember I used to go to the video store. And if I was, you know, rent movies, you know, it was the point where you rent them for like a dollar for a day. Mm. And I rented this numerous times. And and I like I was almost I knew enough people didn't like it that I didn't want people seeing me renting it just because I didn't want to have to defend it. And now here I am doing a podcast where we're defending <laughs> it. So I guess I guess times have changed somewhat. But this this movie and the other one that that was a similar one to me. And I do remember one day where I rented both of them, and I was walking home from the video store, and some friends, you know, I ran into some friends, and they were like, "Oh, what do you got there?" And I almost was like sheepish when I showed them. But it was this and the 1976 King Kong. So you could appreciate <laughs> that. But uh, there you, go. They, you know, the, the the friends were like, "Oh no, those are good movies." So that was it was that kind of, I kind of felt good about that. But I, I remember <laughs> thinking like, you know, they're gonna bust my chops about it. Yeah, this this was one of the first VHS tapes that we actually bought, and I remember I would I would watch this, and en- practically endlessly, especially like if I was home from school and I was sick or something. Because, and much like you with the score, Scott, I could watch this movie and I could go to sleep knowing that as soon as I woke up, I'd know exactly what was going on. Normally, normally the way my brain works is if I'm watching something, I watch it. I can't, then I can't relax and go to sleep because I need to 
pay attention to what's going on. This one, I don't even need the subtitles anymore <laughs> to know what's, what the Klingons and the Vulcans are saying. So I, I know it enough that I, I can let myself go to sleep while watching it. But, see, I that, that edition that I got was the special longer edition. 12 so minutes of additional part. footage. Yeah, so anytime I watch it, like today, I'm like, uh, Ali is supposed to get take Chekhov's pain away, or the crewman's supposed to say, you know, and he wanted to see how it scrambled our molecules. I'm missing those scenes. I film in my head, but I, I'm missing them because they're, they're not available. I, you, you need to get the director's edition, which has some of them, but I don't like that edition, really. I prefer the original version. So I tend to watch the theatrical edition, which means those scenes are gone. I was really lucky some years ago, somebody put out on the Internet, uh, you could download, um, I forget what they call the file, but there's a file that you could download that uh, that was essentially you could burn it straight to a DVD and it, and it created the DVD with the chapters and everything. I forget uh, what that's called. An ISO file. That's it, ISO file. It was an ISO file of the special longer version that was made from the laser disc release. <laughs> and I still have that somewhere. And every once in a while I'll dig it out and watch it. Cause that's still my preferred version of, uh, of star Trek, the motion picture is the special longer version. I just, you know, again, much like with Superman, the movie for me, it, it's got all of the footage in it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I just love that version. But yeah, my, uh, my, uh, you know, falling in love with this movie is kind of a it was kind of a weird journey because I remember when the movie came out. I, I very specifically remember in in uh, seventy nine eighty, my grandparents were living uh, out in uh, it was Ogdensburg, New York, and uh, my uncles were really into Star Trek. And I, at that point, I remembered Star Trek as a as a TV show, and that was about it. I, you know, I, I I had about the same familiarity with it as I would have with like you know Gilligan's Island or anything else you know from that era. So I remembered it in vague terms. I remember the movie coming out because I specifically remember a friend of mine had um, one of the pic one of the posters that came out that you could get with like I think it was like laundry detergent or something. You know? <laughs> and so I remember it in kind of that vague way. And then, you know, a few years later, I got into Star Trek when Star Trek II started playing in, like, constant rotation on HBO. That's when I uh, really became a yep. Star Trek fan, was with the second movie. But it was clearly Star Trek II. So I started asking around, so what, what was the first movie? If this is the second movie, what was the first movie? And invariably, the response I would get from, from friends and family that, were, that had seen it or that were into Star Trek was, oh, that's that really shit one. And that was about all they would ever say. They wouldn't tell me what the story was. They wouldn't tell me what happens. It's just that was the shitty one. And so it, it started to develop, strangely, instead of turning me off to it, it started to develop this mystique. You know, like, I really want to see this movie What you know that the, everybody's talking about. And so finally it came out on, uh, on VHS. And I remember Chris Honeywell and I went to a local video store, and we rented it, and we watched it. And I don't remember hating it. But I do remember just kind of being like, oh, oh, OK, I, I, I guess this is kind of the shit one. And so then I didn't watch it again for for a while, you know, for for probably several years. 
but it was when I, I was actually working in video and, and working for places like, you know, like Suncoast Motion Picture Company and Saturday Matinee and everything. Um, back in those days, they had basically you could you could play two things on the monitor. You could either play the company produced like trailer videos, which would get really boring after a while because it was just nothing but, you know, company slapped together shitty trailers, but nothing of substance. Or you could watch G-rated movies, you know, because they wanted to make sure, you know, there wasn't going to be any language or tits or anything mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, the, the, the playlist was really limited and it was mostly like, you know, Disney cartoons or, or that sort of thing. But every once in a while, you know, if you really dug around, you could find a real gem that was actually rated G. Planet of the Apes, believe it or not, is a G-rated movie. So, you know, there were a few things. And I remember one day stumbling across the fact that Star Trek, the first one, Star Trek the motion picture, was rated G. So I thought, well, it's something else I can watch. And I put it on, and it became one of those things that would play in, in pretty regular rotation. And it was just in that process of watching it over and, and, and more listening to it, honestly, than watching it because, you know, you're working. And it was that process of just that repetition that I, I got it. You know what I mean? I, I just started to kind of get, okay, this now it's making more sense. And, and I started to realize there's a lot more going on in this movie than, than a surface cursory first watch is going to give somebody. Mm. There is characterization. Everybody says there's not, that the characters are off or that there's not enough characterization, but there is characterization. It's just, it's, it's kind of subtle and clever. You know, the, the scene in the, uh, in the lounge when Spock first rejoins. I love that scene. There's your characterization. Everybody says isn't in the movie. It's right there. Those three are, are in their classic form in that sequence, especially McCoy, uh, McCoy bantering and, and kind of needling Spock. I mean, that's classic McCoy right there. And, you know, so I, I started to, to pick out a lot more things that, you know, I hadn't noticed the first time around and, and started to realize that, I don't think other people had noticed these things either because they probably saw it once in the theater or wherever and thought, well, that was really boring. It was kind of, you know, like I say, everybody was telling me, well, it was kind of the shit one. Well, it's not. It's just that it's not Star Wars and it's not Star Trek II. It's its own thing that, you know, plays at a certain speed and, and has a certain uh you know, feel and genre that it's that it's aiming for, and it's not the slam bam, lots of explosions, action adventure genre. It's the cerebral science fiction genre, and with Star Trek, I kind of gravitate more to that. So yeah. that that's where I really started to fall in love with this movie. Let me let me put out to you because I did say at the beginning I wanted to make this a defense of the movie. Are there any criticisms of the movie that you're aware of that we haven't hit on? Um, trying to think, trying to think. Because I think we've hit on I mean, pretty I, much what I always hear, at least. You know, Star Trek, yeah, the motionless I, I, yeah. picture. That's that's motionless. Most, oh, I hate right. that. I yeah, yeah. but I, I hear it all the time. Yeah, that that oh, it's so boring. It's so that's probably the biggest one is how boring it is. I, I'm sorry, but I don't find it boring. You know, and 
the one that actually it, it's you know I hate to use the word offended because that word is just so <laughs> overused these days. But the the one that does you know quote unquote offend me with the boredom argument is it's twenty minutes with Kirk getting to the goddamn Enterprise. I love that sequence yeah. <laughs> because it's taking its time and it's showing you. You know, for one thing, you have to remember, this is very important to remember that, you know, at that point, Star Trek fans have been chomping at the bit for what was it, over 10 years to see Star Trek again. Mm-hmm. And here it is on the big screen. So, of course, they're going to drag out the first time you see the Enterprise. The, you know, the movie's not going to start with the Enterprise flying by like the old TV show. They're going to they're, they're gonna do a slow burn reveal of that shit. And they do. And maybe it's, maybe, uh, I, I'll throw the bone out there to the, to the detractors, maybe it is a little bit long. But I still love it. I think it's great. And I think the, the interplay with, with Kirk's reactions and, and looking around and everything, I, I think it really lends something in there. You can tell, you know, we, we talked about, you know, there's no love affair, uh, you know, physically with a woman in this movie, but here's your love affair. It's Kirk's yep. love for this ship. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a huge part of this. And again, that's classic Kirk. If you look back to, um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. There's uh, I think it's naked time. Where, uh, yeah. yeah, where his emotions break down and, and he's talking about, you know, uh, and now I understand why they call her she and all that. I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of cheesily acted, but he's professing his love for this starship. And here it is happening all over again with with Star Trek, the motion picture. So I, I argue that, you know, that these are the classic characters. You're just seeing them in a, in a different light or in a more. Uh, mature light or you know in the light of the fact that you know something has happened to them they they you know they have progressed as characters i mean did you really want to walk into the theater and it's you know it's still the 60s star trek in 1978 so i'm gonna i'm gonna give a possible thought as to why people think it's boring and, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm what I'm accusing others of I am very guilty of myself uh, a lot there are a lot of movies out there and a lot of TV series out there that lend themselves to it and I like to be able to multitask while I'm watching mm. something and you know I'll sit and read a comic and watch a movie at the same time I'll do it all the time or I'll be on the computer messing around and watching a movie I, I don't always give it my undivided attention. Some movies require your undivided attention. Some movies don't. Especially certain movies that you're rewatching that you've seen, you know, a dozen times don't really require that close of an eye. But this movie in particular, I think if you're trying to multitask, then you're not getting the nuances in there. And you're right. not getting these little character moments. They're just flying by you because they're not hitting you over the head with them. You have to look for them. So if you're trying to multitask and watch this, and if you're trying to watch this on a 19-inch tube TV, you're probably not doing it justice, and you're probably not going to get much out of the experience. So I, I think multitasking is acceptable for certain things, but I think in this particular movie, if you multitask while you're watching it, you're not going to appreciate it. And I do think there is an element, you know, you talked about the slow burn on, on revealing the ship. I think you need to 
appreciate the score that you're hearing while that's going on. <laughs> I think you need to appreciate the yes. cinematography and the special effects while you're watching that. I think it's more than just sitting there and saying, okay, what are they showing me? It's taking it all in and, and becoming part of that scene a little bit. And then and you start to appreciate it more. There's also a story reason for for the length of that. Because if you think about it, you're seeing just how big the Enterprise is. In the TV show, you never really got a sense of scale. I mean, you know there's over 400 guys up there. But you you never got the idea of just how big the ship is. Now you know. You, you know because you see the scale of the travel pod and everything. And that actually works in later because when they do the V'ger flyover, this huge ship that you saw at the beginning of the movie is this little tiny thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you finally get the scale of V'ger based on what you already know. If they didn't take that time initially, then you wouldn't. it wouldn't be as impactful later on. True. Very true. Plus that... Like I said, this was my first interest in Star Trek. That flyover was my first view of the Enterprise. And I cannot see that turnaround with the travel pod and hear the the Enterprise music just kick in without getting a lump in my throat. <laughs> see, seeing it on the big screen also brought tear a tear to my eye because yeah. it was so good. I'll vouch for that. I know you did, you would. You'd sit right next to me. <laughs> that that I, I, I was not experiencing that, but uh but I appreciate that you did. So I guess the question comes to us now, where do we place this movie on the Jaws scale? And I'm gonna go first on this one, and I'm gonna say I really like this movie. I, I enjoy watching it. It's a movie I've watched many, many times. I find it to be just very, I like, I, I'm pulled into it, but I'm also relaxed by it. And I think that goes to, like, what you were saying, Gene, that you could fall asleep mm-hmm. and you wake up and you know exactly where you are. But I think there's so many different things about this that I just enjoy. Um, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I do think that, again, I think it needs a little bit of editing. Uh, you know, Scott, you pointed out a couple of things where the script could have just been tweaked a little bit. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's really good and it's really enjoyable. And, you know, the bigger the screen, the better is all I could say. Uh, I'm going to say for me, it's, it's a Jaws 2. What do you guys think? Well, for me, it, it's, it's Jaws. It is flat out, no question about it, Jaws. And it's one of the, those movies, believe it or not, Having seen it the dozens and dozens and dozens of times that I have seen it, every time I watch it, I notice something new. Yep. And it's it's great because I have watched it so much I can look in the background. I can I can see oh well what's that security guard over there doing you know, and it's it's great. And like today I was just I was thinking about that uniform question. That yeah, these are these are more of a duty uniform. This is what you would wear when you're just walking around the ship, and it makes sense. So uh, I there there might be some places where you edit, but I don't. I wouldn't change 
a thing about the film except to add in the scenes from the special longer version. So right. yeah, for me, for me, the, the, the film is Jaws. Scott. Well, for me, I mean, it, it always comes down to, does it meet my personal criteria? You know, and, and the personal criteria is, is not, I mean, it's not anything terribly stringent or terribly difficult. It's, you know, am I entertained by it? Do I think it's, you know, it has a timeless quality to it. Does it have a great score? And is it one of those movies that if I'm flipping channels, no matter where it is in the movie, no matter how many times I've seen it, no matter if I own it or not on, you know, Blu-ray or whatever, or, you know, something where I can just stream it wherever I want. If I'm just flipping channels and all of a sudden I come across it, will I watch it? And, this one hits all of those for me of all of the, the star Trek films. I think this is still the one that has uh, the future aesthetic that holds up the best. I think this one still looks futuristic. Um, whereas, you know, there, there are other entries in the series. I mean, I'll point right at star Trek four star Trek four is what five or six years younger than this movie. And looks a hell of a lot more dated to me somehow. I'm not sure mm. why that is, but there's something about the aesthetic of this one that honestly, I think the only thing that I ever see in this movie that kind of pulls me out a little bit, um, you know, aesthetically as far as you know it being futuristic or whatever is Uhura's afro. Um, that pulls <laughs> me right, or reminds me that this is you know the 70s. But other than that, I, I, I love the aesthetic that they have in this. It, it does feel futuristic, and it feels like you know the era that they're going for and all that. Um, you know, quotability is a big one as well. You know, this movie often gets criticized that you know there's long sequences without any dialogue. I've often heard it called you know practically dialogue less, which is ridiculous. <laughs> there is a lot of dialogue in it. And I think it does have some really fun and quotable things. I find myself doing the, will you please sit down all the time? I do that one all the time. So, I mean, I, I do find it eminently quotable as well. So, um, you know, it, this is one of those ones where, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm happy to defend it. I'm happy to express my love for it. But at the same rate, I, it's one of those ones, unfortunately, I feel like you kind of have to asterisk with – it may not be for everyone. You know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. For me personally, it's Jaws. You know, your mileage may vary, but I, I love it. I think it's a great movie. I hold, I, I think it holds up really well. And I am just so happy to see that, you know, the tide of public opinion does seem to have turned at least somewhat, uh, you know, from the first time, you know, I ever talked about this in, in podcasting, you know, the, it does seem like there are a lot more people out there that that love it and appreciate it the same way that Gene and I do. And that that's very nice. That's very rewarding. Boy, I give it a joyous too, and I don't even get included in that comment anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you got to call it the way you see it. And it's not that I don't love it. I'm just trying <laughs> yeah. to, to 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 give an honest uh, review on it. That that's your opinion, and you're more than entitled to it. It's wrong, but you're. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a there that's is a great. reason that I asked the two of you to do this particular movie. <laughs> so, and I'm glad. You know, I I think we've we've set forth a pretty viable 
defense uh, against the criticisms that I've heard. Uh, that doesn't mean that anybody watching it is necessarily going to say, oh, all of a sudden I didn't like it and now I do. But maybe, you know, maybe people can you know, view it with a different eye now. That's all I'd ask. You know, Gene and I have got that, though, and, and I think that's really cool. You know, we, we have both gotten that because uh, was it your very first episode, Gene, or just one of your first episodes? It was, it, it was episode eight, eight where you came on, and that was, believe it or not, five years ago. Wow. <laughs> because it was for the 35th anniversary. Wow. Uh, but if anyone does want to hear other opinions, I think we went a little more into the music and the scoring and everything on that. Um, and we we brought up a couple different points. But if you go to the Hammer podcast on 2TrueFreaks.com and look up episode eight, that is our discussion of the 30th anniversary and what what we thought back then, I'm going to guarantee our opinions really haven't changed that much. <laughs> nor, nor should they so I want to thank you guys for coming on and spending some time with me here this has been a lot of fun and I, I really enjoyed it And uh, yeah, that's, that's all I could say thank you for you guys and thank you for everybody who's listening and uh, we'll see you in two weeks live long and prosper will you please sit down <laughs> I know engineers, they love to change things. <laughs> I use that at work all the time. <laughs>
Welcome aboard.